Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. No is precisely Where did we leave off? That's a great question. The ring goes south. Is the ring on that chapter, or did we finish that? Mm. Yeah. Sort of book two, correct? No. We were. Kind of right in the middle of the ring goes south. Uh, we were having conversations at one point about Karandros, I believe, about mm -hmm. trying to cross over the mountain and the nature of the mountain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was annoyed because I didn't know that. Was he what? Because I hadn't read that part. Oh, so okay. I was annoyed because it stopped. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess at the end of at the end of the ring goes south, they they're they turn back, right, and they go down the snow Latin mountain, and all of a sudden it stops. Yes, is that yeah. is that where the chapter I mean, ends? Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much where it is. I was trying to delineate things in my mind, trying to remember where they. This part of the journey is a little bit episodic, so it doesn't doesn't matter so linearly. Um, all right, well, cool. What's, how do we usually intro these things? On the recording. Uh, I, I don't know, um, because Randy sometimes just jumps in, so. Alright. Um, I mean, we could say that we've just finished Ringo's. You, know, we, you, can, you just actually just recapped Ringo's stuff. Yeah. And so you can pick up from, from there and just jump in. I don't think we had any. Goal in mind necessarily for this next one. All right. Well, this is Verum Fabula episode ten thousand six hundred and seventy-one. Uh, no, gosh, how many years would that have to be? Uh, yes, that had to be a lot. That has to be like over a millennia, right? Yes. Yeah. We don't do fifty-two times a year, so it's definitely no. more than that. Look. 40, 35, 40? Yeah. A year? Yeah. Several millennia. Anyway, today we're doing Fellowship of the Ring. Finished, kind of finishing up Ring Goes South. We'll touch on it. We'll go on a journey in the dark, which is, I think, the next chapter. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the memory's, memory's clicking now. All right. Song <laughs> in the back. Cool. Well,. I don't know about y'all, but I found the I found the ends of Ringo South always a little interesting, but also kind of I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Kind of a letdown, I guess that's deliberately why he wants it to be, but also he kind of lets the narrative kind of just slowly sort of trickle out as they kind of trickle out of the mountain. 
I also find it interesting that you see the physiques, the physical differences between the men and, and Legolas and, and Gimli and, and Hobbits very much so. Like the, the physical differences are very much emphasized in this section, perhaps more than any other up to this point. It's like Boromir and Aragorn can easily push through the snow. And Legolas like like just doesn't or like or just like, just like I'm gonna walk on it instead so that works, which is weird. And then the hobbits can't do it, and Gimli just I think quietly doesn't want to, so he just stays back, which is interesting. But I always found that to be a nerdy point of reference for me. It's like whenever I try to think about uh, what's the size difference here, it's like all right, well the men are usually big. Elves are maybe a little more slender, but still strong, and then the dwarves are like stout and ornery. But it's, it's interesting to, to note that, and it's also the personalities start to come out a lot when they're fighting the wind and the rain and everything, and Boromir gets a little testy. I have a question about Boromir. So he says here, um, when, before they go through the snow, when they're trying yeah. to figure out what they're going to do, he says, uh, as we say in my country, when heads are at a loss, bodies in the streets. And I really, I liked that a lot, but I wondered how that played into his personality and who he is. And since I don't know very much about him, I wondered if there was any commentary that would help show how that comment does or does not embody him. You know what I was the last part of that? You want me to reread? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well said, Bormir. When heads are at a loss, bodies must serve. As we say in my country, mm -hmm. yeah. the strongest of us must seek away. You almost have to wait to contrast him with Faramir. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of, you'll see the balance of like what it's getting at. Yeah, definitely true. Especially because he's, as, as you may, as well as Legolas kind of notes a little bit, he doesn't always think things through as long as they ought to be thought through. He's not much of a thinker. He's, um, in contrast to some of the other characters, a bit more than he had. So this is very indicative. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty indicative of him. He's, and then it even like well, you can you can look at Journey in the Dark in the next chapter. Boromir is kind of like. We'll just go south. Like we'll just go down past Isengard. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Or we'll just go down past Lebanon, you know, and, and go around the coast. And again, I was like, no, it doesn't make any sense, man. Like it's like we're never gonna get there in time, or we'll get caught. And he's just kind of like a push through sort of dude. He's just gonna do it, you know. He's arrogant. Yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of thoughtless in general. But he he, he relies on his strength a lot. I think that's kind of like his default. Like he's always been able to do it. He's been the captain of Gondor his whole life, and he's like, people like revere him. He's like, he's just like, everyone's like, oh, Boromir. And you hear it over and over again in the rest of the books. You're like, oh, Boromir was a great captain of men, a valiant man. You know, over and over again. And like, it's, it's like, clearly this dude was privileged. Yeah, privileged and had a lot of battle prowess. Um, but I think that kind of is indicative that this character is kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to, whatever. Would you say he's, he's competent? He's what? He's competent? Yeah, he's definitely competent. He's just a little bit thoughtless, I think. Well, he, here he is, like, in Gondor, he was... Uh, his father is the one who serves in place of the king. He is the leader he has. He basically has all the wealth that he had, all the privilege to lead um, soldiers into battle, do whatever he wanted, got whatever he wanted. 
and now he's part of the fellowship where he has to work as a team. He's no longer the leader. But also, in hindsight, he's almost the bottom man on the totem pole now because, yeah. you know, Aragorn, um, Gandalf, and Legolas, like, they, they have all intermingled with each other several times. The Hobbits intermingled with each other. So, like, they all kind of know how each, their own groups work. And, like, the Hobbits respect Gandalf, Aragorn, all of them. And then you got Barmir, who's like trying to be like, well, let's do this, and then he's being undermined. So, yeah. like, he's, he's he's lost that privilege that he had. He gets snubbed a lot too by you know by Gandalf and and Elrond and Aragorn. Pretty much anyone wiser than him, he's like they're like, no, nah, not so much. And you know, most most of that's his fault. But I mean, even the Hobbits like. They're kind to him, but like they can tell, like we shouldn't listen to him because nobody else is listening to him. Yeah, which has definitely got to be irksome for a guy who's always probably been listened to his whole life. Anyways, he's you know, as the captain of Gondor, he was always like, "All right, let's do this, fight that. You go over there, you go over there, spread out," and they would do it. On a literary aspect, though, he's. He's outside the company, really. Oh, yeah. He's outside the prophecies. He's outside the myth. He's, he is... He's the guy who doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. Where everybody else is privy to certain pieces of information. You know, even Frodo and Sam, they, they have Bilbo's stories. They have the mythology that they're steeped in. And they've been with Strider. They've been with Gandalf. Boromir's not half... He's, he's, he's a different character. He's, he's an outsider completely. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of like, he was drawn up here by a prophecy and he still doesn't know why. Right. Like, why did they tell me to seek the sword that was broken? What the heck am I doing here? And I think that's probably another reason he defaults to his strength so much. He's like, well, I'm a strong guy, so I've got nothing else to do, but I might as well just be strong because, you know, seems to be necessary in this journey. Well, is he good-hearted about Because like, everything that you're saying, I'm going, oh, but he was one of the called. She called him. So he belongs, even though he doesn't belong. And I don't remember Boromir's story, so that's part of the reason I'm confused with him. Have you read the whole thing? I've read all three of them, but I was 17. That was a very long time. Uh, yeah. I think he has good intentions. It's just, he was privileged. He... He has his mindset of this is what I'm going to do because he's just, he's always been the leader. He had that privilege of, he didn't probably have to work up the ranks to become a leader. He had, he had it gifted to him. And so now he's part of this company where he's not even the leader. And so he, he just, he doesn't have that, that concept of, okay, I'm going to listen to you because you know this area a lot better than me. So, like, I'm going to follow you. He's not a follower. He wants to be a leader. So he has good intentions. It's just he doesn't know how to act. He doesn't know how to step back from that leadership role. And he also has a deep desire to take charge. And he, as we learn later, is always irked by the fact that his father was not the king. And one of the things he would say is, how many years does it take for a steward to become a king? And Denethor would respond, fewer years in places of less royalty and lineage, but in Gondor, uh, a thousand years would not suffice to uh, 
to replace the king, uh, something to that effect. And and so it's it's definitely like you can see in his character, he's always hurt by that aspect of his upbringing. That's uh, interesting to pull on pull on that thread right there. I think that's yeah. interesting because. Um, He's like, I've done everything that is required for everyone else, but yet my family is not in that same vein. Um, I, I'm praised among men. I have he has many uh, won many battles. He's been he's confident, successful, all this kind of stuff. But yet he, yet uh, Aragorn is still elevated. And yet, where where is his glory? Where is his battle? Where, where's where's he's not led men into battle like I have? You know, this probably some resentment. Oh, yeah, as well. Definitely. I mean, he's like, and that's another interesting thread to pull on. You don't see it a ton in this part of the book, but like that rivalry between them, which is mentioned in later, like as as potential later on, or would have been potential later on, and you don't see it um, very much, but it's definitely there, like up beneath the surface. And he's got to be threatened by that, and also like. Aragorn's just kind of like a, you know, he's Strider still. He's Tolkien goes out of his way to paint him as a wandering-looking dude, even in the House of Elrond. Like he's still wearing his ragged sort of street-worn clothes there, and it's like he's he's like a he's definitely a humble king, but like that's not something that Boromir is gonna take too easily, particularly when he's grown up like being you know, dude who's in charge. Well, I don't think it makes him a bad person. I just think it's, I mean, it's like he's grasping for something that he may or, or I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, any person that is working towards something and still is not viewed as, you know, the ruler, I mean, I think that's a natural response. Not necessarily a bad person. It's just, you know, he's doing all these things but not getting there. Mm-hmm. You might could yeah, I think you're onto something because you might could really understand that and the fact that it's like it's one thing if the king the line of kings are gone and they're wiped out and they're dead and it's more of a symbolic thing but if you have a line of kings who's absentee and you're the one fighting the battles and it's they it's not that they can't come back but that they choose not to mm-hmm. there's a sense of like you're do you really know your people are you really loyal to your people but I've been the one that's that's been able to to fight yeah. I've led people into battles I've there's a sense of like I know it's in the movie not necessarily in the book but by the blood of by the blood of our people or your lands kept safe mm-hmm. is that that premise like you know that may lend a little credence mm-hmm. I think he is kind of understandable in that way yeah mm-hmm. he's very very human mm-hmm. and I think maybe there's even that sense of that he has this valiance I think ultimately like in the sense of that's a gift Without that, there's the question of what am I? Mm-hmm. And I think that may yeah. lead to some insecurities of not knowing and those insecurities showing themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, his whole identity is being brought into question. And it's admirable that he's still following. Even mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. You know, that's, a, that's not easy to swallow your whole lineage, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that. But um, he sees the way that the others treat Aragorn and his claim. And, and it's interesting... And, you know, I wonder, too, if he knew, if he, like, he is less learned in lore than some of the other people around him, especially his father and brother, but 
like, there was like an attempt in the past to reunite the two kingdoms, and it like totally failed, and like it was bad. Um, so like they they tried it in the past, and it didn't land. And you gotta wonder if he's even aware of that. Like you know, if he's even aware there's this like still tension that hasn't really been talked about between the Dumedain and and the and the men of the south. Like it's Gondor. It's like that's. Uh, that's like a long-standing issue, and Aragorn talks about it, or alludes to it, several times in the, in the last book. He's like, I don't, the time's not ripe. And he's like, this is, he, he knows the history, like you can see he's very like, we gotta make this, we gotta time this right, because this did not go well last time. And he like wants to do it right, and, and, I, and I wonder if like Boromir even knows about that kind of stuff. I mean, certainly Faramir would, but you know, you gotta wonder you know, how much Boromir knew. And even in his, if, if, especially if he, had, he was ignorant of it, that's still like a, that's still a, a testament to his character for going that far at all with them. Um, and uh, and he does often like he does talk like even in that right before you said he always talks about the needs of the hobbits. He's like, well, we can walk this path, but we, the, little, the little people can't. And so he's kind of trying to look out for them on several occasions. Um, yeah, he's an interesting dude. He's an interesting dude. And he comes to, his his voice gets raised a lot in the next chapter of Journey in the Dark when they're trying to decide what to do when they go, whether to go into Moria or not. I don't know, what do you guys think about the beginning, that whole, well, the whole thing in Moria, but that debate of whether to go through, we're talking about like when they're all discussing about their options of where to go. Yeah. Like, it's interesting, like going off of like talking about Boromir, like his, like his. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Passion of like, I do not want to go in here. Because mm-hmm. as we mentioned, like he doesn't know much of war, but he's over here like, I know not to go in this mine. Yeah. I may not know much, but I know you don't walk into a line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. He's very passionate. It's funny too, like all the other characters know about it, like too. They know that's not great. Don't go into Moria. Well, the fact that at the council they were talking, like the the dwarves came there because they're like, we're we don't know what's happened to our cousins. Here's where they last were. And it's like, yeah. I'll just have the conversation. They Gimli's cousins went in the mine yeah. and they never came out. Yeah. Haven't heard from them in thirty years. Yeah. And you still want to go in the mine? That's not a great sign. <laughs> Which I mean. 
it's different. Like, look in the movie, in the book, you know, they're all talking about, like, we haven't seen him, this is what happened. But in the movie, you know, Gimli's over here, like, we'll be welcomed uh, by my family, or by my cousin, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, they changed that quite a bit. Yeah, that's definitely a change. I think, I wonder, you know, this kind of goes back to what Gandalf says in the council, because, like, Gandalf's really the only person who's like, we gotta do this. Like, yeah. this, like, like what Gandalf said, it's like, it's not despair, because despair is for only those who have, who can see all in. Mm-hmm. But it's also not folly, because folly would be choose something that you know is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Like, this is literally the only option we have. Like, we have to do it. Yeah. And he, I like his reason, his line of logic in this debate's really interesting. He's like, look, I've done it before, we know that there are a few orcs, and that's maybe what's waiting for us there, at, at worst. Uh, it should be okay. If we go this way, we're definitely going to get caught. If we go that way, we won't make it in time. There's This way is a chance. It's just bad. So we got to try it. And it's funny because Aragorn, despite not wanting to go either, like makes that very plain. He's not really for this at all. He's like, I'll follow you. Like, just... He, like, yields his authority, which is interesting, too, that so often in this, Aragorn is, like, yields his authority to Gandalf, which is really, really interesting, because it seems to go very counter to medieval-style literature, which is, you know, of course, Tolkien and Lewis's thing. Like, they just totally like, oh, yeah, wizard, lead us. Like, that doesn't happen very often in, in medieval literature. They maybe ask for counsel every now and then, but never like, oh, you're in charge. Like, this is really interesting because he kind of takes it a different direction and we get into the whole Maiar aspect of, of Gandalf, but uh, it's, it's, it's like a different relationship mm-hmm. and, and very interesting to see a guy who is to be king just being like, I'm good. I'm good. Like, you, you, I don't like this, but I'm going to follow you because you're wise and wiser than me. And you've been around forever, so. He plays two different archetypes. He plays the sage, because he's the most learned. Yep. But he also plays the magician, who can see the unseen. So he plays with both of those. But I think that going into Moria actually is a, is a, is a, as Jordan Peterson says, the quintessential story of all human life. You have to go into the darkness. Mm-hmm. You have to go into the, the place you don't most don't want to go. You have to go in there to find what you most need. And so that's that's the I said that's like the earliest story of all human humankind is going into the unknown. Um, and uh, this is very Beowulfian. If you, if you remember when we read Beowulf, yeah, very much Beowulf. To get to Grendel's mother, they had to go down to the deepest pits to to fight her to to to, uh, to bring peace. And so. This is one of those going into the darkness type things um, that I was like, oh, this is this is good because, yeah, there's there's things in there that you find out about yourself that you didn't know before. So. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if that's one of our, our uh, willingness to go there is one of the things that separates us from all other creatures. It just seems to be very. That's a good thought. But yeah. <coughs> What do y'all think about the uh, the wait at Moria? <laughs> the waiting around. 
They didn't go right in? That was quick. Like the movie? Walked right on in. I just find it so funny, like, they, like, Kano's like, all right, we need to hurry up, we need to get there. And then they're there, and he's, like, he's like sitting there plucking out, like hours going, all right, that didn't work. Next one, this one, nope, this one, nope. And then like, he just gets mad and like kicks the ground and all this stuff. It's just, it's just funny to see the sage foiled too, which is also an interesting kind of twist. But it's, it's, it's really good. And then you got uh, the riddle. Which, which really isn't a riddle. It yeah. wasn't a riddle. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing. It wasn't really a riddle. Gandalf just thought it was a riddle. He's like, well, it's a riddle. You ever, like, try to focus on something so hard yeah. that it should be so simple that you should miss it, and then somebody comes along, and they're just like, oh, yeah, it's this, and it's like, yeah, one of those moments. When you have a hammer, everything will go nail. Right? Yeah. 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 Or, like, you go, like, sometimes I'll be doing something, like, in the editing room, and I'll, I'll like just be working on a problem I cannot figure it out to save my life, and then I'll walk away and like for an hour, and I'll come back and like just look at it, and I was like, it's right there. Like, <laughs> you know, why didn't I think of this like an hour and a half ago? Like it's this, this dumbest thing. But, yeah, the brain needs a reset. <clears throat> There's a parallel to the Hobbit with going into the caves and the riddles. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. up till up to Rivendell, they went the same path as Bilbo, mm -hmm. and now they've changed direction, but they're going through some of the same experiences. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting too. This is the first time we <coughs> have whisperings of Gollum. Mm -hmm. He's in the cave again. Mm -hmm. He shows up again in the cave, which yeah. is very, very much uh, his character. Mm. Um, yeah, I found I found that part. I mean, I don't know. But when you go in through the cave, it's like any dark place, you hear the things. Like your first instinct is I'm imagining that. Like mm -hmm. it's always that's your first instinct. And then like when it isn't your imagination, then you get really freaked out. <laughs> Gollum's probably not the character you'd really want to think about unless you were in a dark cave and worried about things sneaking up on you. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be thinking about him in Rivendale being like, I wonder what this chap's up to. Yeah. I mean, they make him, you know, you, you think of he's he's innocuous, he's 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 more or less harmless. Yet, no matter how hard Sauron looked for him, he he got away from everybody pretty much. And you go, that takes some real skill to be to be that unseen. Even when uh, the you know the great riders, the striders looking for you, you can't you can't find you. It's like. What, what kind of devious mind do you have to have to, to be that that good at, at hide and seek? Especially yeah. for a hobbit. Yeah. Which is I like the one of the only things I kind of liked about the new series was that they portrayed the Harfoots as very good at hiding. I was like, okay, alright, I respect that because that explains a lot about the character of the hobbits and especially about their nearest, the nearest hobbit, uh, Gollum, because he was like, he was, you know, if he's not that long separated from a hardfoot kind of nomad hiding society, then he's still going to have those abilities and instincts to be able to hide. Uh, really interesting. Well, I mean, just in the hobbit itself, they talk, like Gandalf talked about, like hobbits are quick on their feet, and yeah. they can't, 
they're not easily detected. It's like, yeah. like there he, you go. He, that's how he is. But yeah, and he's he's like yeah, so good at it. And it comes back around later on with all the river and stuff too, which is interesting. But it's interesting that like book movie whatever Frodo always keeps spotting him. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know you got like Legolas and who and Strider who have amazing hearing. So you would think they would already know he was there. Which we kind of get it later in the book. Like, he knows that they're tra that he's trailing them. But it also, like, I, when I was reading, I'm just like, I want, it's like, kind of like, you have to feel like somebody's watching you. It's like, you know, Goblin's watching the ring. Yeah. So, like, it's almost like the ring is, like, telling Frodo, like, hey. Yeah. My previous owner's over here watching you. Yeah. And that, I think that definitely is a, is a, sort of allusion to the power of the ring even when it's not being actively used like because it, it does that in other times too like when sam's in the edge of mortar and he holds it but doesn't put it on um and like yeah there's there's still power in it even when it's not being actively used and of course you know the eternal youth like they're not wearing it all the time but they're, they're it's still power powerful so it's interesting that that that's a that's so often called back with Frodo. And there's like seems to be a connection there too. That that starts. I think even in Moria, Frodo feels it, like feels that connection to Gollum, and he doesn't like it. Like it, definitely then he doesn't like it, and then he like later on kind of changes his mind a little bit. It just didn't seem though like it had this real real effect on Bilbo. Like, it yeah. just feels like, you know, Frodo was stronger that he was able to, you know, carry, bear the ring for as long as he did. Yeah. And get it to, like, to the mountain to destroy it. But Bilbo had it for years. And besides, you know, keeping him youthful and, you know, sometimes he would have fun with the ring, like, it never really changed him like it changed Gollum. Like, it changed Frodo. Like, Frodo, you could physically see the pain of burying the ring. And then Bella's over here like, oh, just, it's my pocket, I'm just going to pick it up in the air a couple times. It's like, yeah. It's just interesting like, how the ring changes the, the bearer. Yeah, it, I think that's interesting. Also, they do allude later on, it does allude to how the power of the ring grows as it gets closer to, it gets closer to Mordor. So I, I wonder if like Frodo had remained forever in Hobbiton, if he would have been much like Frodo or Bilbo, or maybe still changed, with maybe like in a different way. But and no one was looking for the ring either. <laughs> that also goes back to like the pureness of the Shire, where mm -hmm. you're kind of secluded from everything else that's going on. So. Even though the rain can't corrupt you, it's, yeah. I feel like it would be harder to be corrupted in a place that's kind of just pure all the time. Even though Bilbo had his previous experiences, you're still like almost in like a heaven-like atmosphere. Yeah. Now, if you were in places where there is evil, just right, right there next to you in a battle, or you know, it'd be easy to. That's why if it was in the, the, uh, the kingdom of men, it would be used right. <laughs> treacherously, yeah. and almost immediately. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. It's just different. We also come here to 
Be thrilled. Which was a big plot point in that show, although no. I was gonna say, <laughs> speaking of treachery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> speaking of rewriting everything. It's, um, it's kind of it's it's kind of fun when you like realize like Bilbo has this like amazing gift and yeah. he doesn't have, he has no clue at so you yeah. know so oh I just like you know lent it to a museum you know no whatever <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this nice gift that I got and it's like it's actually worth the whole shot yeah <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh man, it's, it's a, a whole, that whole thing is really awesome, I, like I love that reveal, it's a slow burn too, because it like, keeps getting more and more important as the next couple chapters go on, and I thought, I thought this was really interesting, this section, um, Sam asked what did the dwarves want to come back to uh, Moria for, and Gandalf was like, for Mithril. That the wealth of Moria is not in gold and jewels, the toys of the dwarves, nor in iron their servants. Such things they found here is true, especially iron, but they did not need to delve for them. All things they desired to be attained of traffic, for here alone in the world was found Moria silver, or true silver, as it is called. And then he goes on to like talk about all the properties and then you know how everyone wanted it, and it like didn't tarnish, it grew dim, and uh, and like. <clears throat> Uh, then they go on, you know, do they say that thing, of course, the more is silver. <laughs> I said, I never told him, but it's worth is greater than the value of the whole shire and everything. <laughs> and I love that Gandalf didn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, yeah, he doesn't even know that. <laughs> that's, that's a sagely thing if I've ever seen one. It's like, you only need to know some things. <laughs> I'm going to keep that back from you. Uh, and I wonder, like, then, then I wonder, oh, if, if he'd known that Frodo had it, would he let him know? Mm -hmm. Probably still would have, because it didn't make any difference at this point, since Frodo knew what he had to do, but it's just funny. But that, that whole thing was <clears throat> such a prominent through line when it comes to the end. What stuck out to y'all most about Moria itself? I think it's one of those things, it's hard to imagine... Moria. Like, in you get like a glimpse of what it would be like in um, the movies where they walk in the, you know, and then yeah. light up and it's like, oh, this place is actually huge. Yeah. But like, it's still really hard to imagine. Yeah. It is. I've always had trouble wrapping my brain around it when he, when, yeah. when he reads it. And partly I think that's because of the way he describes it. It's like, Basically, just Gandalf's pool of light that they're following down a dark hole for most of the time, and he like deliberately wants to make you feel lost inside of a mountain, which is, which he definitely does. Um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting. You know what's weird? This is this is something. This is something. The best description of Moria is the music that plays when the, when Gandalf lets loose the light in the in the in the movie to my mind like cuz I, I listen to the books a lot and that part is played uh, the the score for the movie is played in that audio version and it's like every time i hear that song i'm like now i see it <clears throat> something something about that kind of like triumphal but solemn and dark tune that like just like lets you brings you into the dwarvish mindset 
And I think there's something really beautiful about that. Like, there's some things that music, only music can mm -hmm. convey to the mind, or at least to my mind. Well, I think that's a huge part of even this story. Like, you know, of course you've got the books, but then the music just makes it so next level. Yeah. yeah. If there's one good thing coming out of that yeah. series, it's the music. Howard Shore just penned an eternally good soundtrack. The dim remembrance of a forgotten glory, I think, is because uh, Moria has yes. been so ancient. Yes, there it is. Like that before, before Gondor. Like I mean, there's a in the Song of Durin. There's a point where it talks about how uh, Gondolin and Nargothrond. Yes, yeah. like those are long forgotten ancient kingdoms. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, there's this sense of like where now there's the this thing is the hollow shell of what it once was. But even in this slight thing you get to see, there's just such a... Like, and in that, you were saying the score, like, you just, you hear that, and you see this, and there's, you feel that, the, uh, the sense of this place was once great, and it's just beautiful and breathtaking, but how it's really fallen into yeah. decline. Yep. And that's a theme, that's a theme that starts kind of here, in, in this part. It's like, Tolkien's always talking about how the things of the fathers were the, mm -hmm. were, you know, the things that were mighty and beautiful, and it's like a sense of grim. It'd be like going. It's like this doesn't quite capture, it, but it's like when you see footage of like cameras going inside the Titanic, you know. And it's like you see like this. This it's just such a. There's such a hollow, sad memory there. But there, it's just something like you could have seen it, and it's it's prime, and it was really something to see and something to behold, you know. Yeah, kind of reminds me. Do you guys know uh, Ozymandias? Yeah, Shelley. Mm -hmm. Kind of reminds me of. Of that, the, the the eternal king lying there in ruins, um, and just but just think about the industriousness of the dwarves to create <laughs> yeah. massive kingdoms underground that no one ever sees. You just see, yeah. uh, but the level of excellence those guys had um, is is absolutely impressive. Uh, but the, the last thing that, that really comes to me is. Um, when you stare into the abyss, and the abyss stares back, <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of what we're getting into in this right here. Yeah. That, um, and so I think that's uh, that's an interesting concept. How, how long you stare into the abyss, and when it starts staring back at you, that's unnerving. Yeah. And there, and there, you kind of touch on the next thread. I think of this, the theme of this is the dwarves delving too deep. Like it's, it's sad. Um, <clears throat> it's like. It seems like Tolkien paints in a picture of inevitability, you know, about about the fall of, of you know, the fall of what he would call the children of mm. Lubitar, and just at large, just like that they inevitably are their own destruction uh, because they go too far after the things that don't matter and don't value uh, good food and cheer above hoarded gold, um, but. It's uh, it's uh, it's just really interesting because this is where it, 
and start you start to see that a little bit and it starts to pull on that theme and it kind of goes throughout the whole rest of the book in various ways but the whole rest of the series rather in various ways yeah, he the balrog is like the personification of greed gone too far it's like this is what you've wrought <laughs> like your your own destruction is is embodied in this like shapeless darkness that just seeks to destroy and like it's what you opened the door to because you went too far i I, just, I wish you guys would push back on this because this is just a, this is a not a random it was a weird thought gimli talks about women whores the the feminine side like uh, yeah mainly they're, they're bearded like we are you can't really tell them apart and if you think of the industriousness of uh, I can't think of anything more masculine in mm. that of, of going after stuff um, and, and, and evaluating things, right? That's so what they went for greed. They, they went after all these stones and the, you know, the Ark and Stone, they go back into the, into the Hobbit. The feminine quality always has been about, uh, about valuing people, mm -hmm. empathy and things like that. Masculine values things. And so the contrast of even looking at the elves, the elves might even be a more feminine quality uh, because they live in harmony and peace and they're more about not so much things but maybe people. And then the dwarves over here are the, like the hyper-masculine. I, I don't know, play with that, but just the thought that came to me is like, this is, yeah, the, it seemed to be the most masculine thing would be the dwarves, considering you can't tell the women from the men. It's another, that might have been a tell or that might have just been something Yeah, funny. there might be something there. It's interesting that Tolkien kind of, like in the Silmarillion and stuff, like the, the dwarves are definitely always the more industrious, although the elves, led by Feanor, are pretty greedy in their own way. But it's almost like their own greed is less about things and more about, like, they, they crave everlasting light, um, which is, like, why Feanor tries to put the light of the two trees into the Silmarils. Like, he wants to forever cement that light and have it. And, you know, I guess probably have power over it in some way. But he... It's like the, the, the elves always seem to value the living thing Though it's not necessarily each other, but like the living, you know, creatures, the trees, the, the animals, and all this, that's like their, their thing that they value, and like, maybe like one of their roads to getting that was like Feanor's attempt to capture the light of the Silmarils, and, and they'd go on to talk about that in other ways, and the Silmarillion on blanking. But it's then it's this whole like blood feud between them and Morgoth because of that. And it just turns into like a thousand years of vengeance. And more than that, actually, like, several thousand years of vengeance. And it's just a total mess. Um, and then they chill out. Yeah. <laughs> and the elves like, are like, alright, we're too old for this. <laughs> they just kind of like, we're good. <laughs> Until Sauron comes back and tries to ruin Middle Earth. And they're like, alright, last time. <laughs> and then we're done. But yeah, it's it's interesting that there's I think there's something there. There's definitely something there you're pulling on. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know if it's you know as sometimes as writers things come up, uh, you know you, you didn't mean to put that in there, but that as 
because you're writing from a certain yeah. philosophical bit, things naturally just uh, arise in that. In that yeah, way, so. totally. I mean, he definitely meant the greed part. Yes. Like that was, yeah. you know, clearly an allusion to our greedy tendencies, and maybe even the Balrog being that personified. But it's, yeah, I think I think he's, you know, if you write that long enough, it's going to come out like in the way the dwarves are, and it comes out in the relationship with Gimli and Legolas stuff later too, doesn't it? Like the way that yes. the way they talk about things. Although Gimli's relationship to stone and things is much more like an elvish relationship to the land. Like he even says at some point we tend the glades of stone. Like that's a thing for him. So like to his mind, and I think this is why Galadriel sees this sees something akin in him is is that she sees that he values things not for the power that they can bring, but for the things, them, like what they are and their essence. And um, that's interesting. She says, "Yeah, I, something like I, you love no. You may, you will be filled. Your houses will be filled with silver and gold, but they will have no power over you." Is what she says about him, which is interesting. I fell in love with him in this book. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. That's cool. That's you cool. Know, it's just so different. They just paint him in a much softer light, even mm -hmm. in the story. I mean, he's got his rough, you know, tendencies, sure. but I feel like in the movie, it's so. He's just so harsh. Yeah. But they, like, just make it. I mean, obviously, as we go further into the book, but the. Some of the things he says is just so loving. And yeah. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So. And he sings in the book, like he mm -hmm. sings that whole song about Casa Doom and at the beginning of the, uh, the beginning of the journey through Moria, and like, then like they ask him questions, but he's like he sung his song, he's not going to talk anymore. He's just sitting there, just like dwelling in it, and like, and uh, his eyes light up when he like hears about Moria, like he's so excited. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting dwarf, um, and he's different too than some of the others in the Hobbit that, that Tolkien wrote, I think anyway. It's interesting that you mentioned that Galadriel said that, you know, his house would be full of gold, but gold won't have dominion over him. Because that made me think of Bombadil again. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, that idea of Bombadil's whole house would be filled with gold and he doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that idea, That's you know. Good. Yeah. There's, a, there's, like a, there's like a theme there that he's, he's kind of playing on, like, the, the, the righteous person is, to, is, the, is whom... You know that power does not have authority have authority over, over. Um, yeah, like that. and that's similar to Aragorn's uh, trajectory too yeah. a little bit, and Faramir's trajectory to a certain extent. So although not so as much, but power, you know, and uh, in many ways, Sam and Frodo too. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a really, it's a really good point. Yeah, it's cool. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there in that one. We probably don't want to go too far down that one because we get into the spoilers again. Don't we? <laughs> How far did? Has everyone here gotten all the way through it now? Everyone all the way through Fellowship. Where'd you end? I've read it. Oh, you read it. Okay. Yes. Oh, I think I thought you said no. Okay, so gotcha. Yeah, everyone's read it. Okay, so not spoiling anything if we go to the end of Fellowship further, I suppose. Except for the. Listeners. Yeah, well, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
What, uh, but we haven't even really touched on the Balrog yet. No, um, oh, but you gotta, you gotta touch on him. Yeah. Okay. See, yes. okay, so one of the things, it interested me because I was listening to, um, I can't remember his name, but he's a scholar. He's a Tolkien scholar. And he was talking about how Balrog doesn't have wings. And, you know, he says, like, very specifically, like, the books don't have that in it. Does it happen in the movie? He said, and that's the thing, he said, uh, the movie adds it in there. But he oh, says, the book says, like, it's almost like a metaphor. Like, the darkness surrounded him like wings. Yeah. yeah. But I have the newest, like, since I checked out ebook, it's like the newest like the newest edition that yeah. came out. And it very clearly says that the Balrog has wings. Let's stretch from wall to wall. Yeah. And right, so wait, I, that's what I Okay. What which which edition is that? This is uh, let me let me get to the title page. This one is ninety four. Uh, let's see. This edition is based on the reset edition, first published 2002. Okay. It stepped forward slowly on the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall. And so I was wondering, like, if somebody had a different edition that that wasn't included in it. You're saying your Tolkien scholar is wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be a tough one to be wrong about. Yeah. Because, and I mean, at the beginning of this book, it talks about how, like, how Tolkien had a horrible time with people, like, rechanging stuff, and how, like, the American editions were different than the British editions, and how, like, every single time they redid it, there would always be mistakes that were put into it, and so, like, I didn't know if that was like one of those things or like some of the editions said like maybe it was like wings. Yeah. Wait, what was the sentence before that one? Read that again. Yeah. Mm, where did it go? Sorry. It's not Okay. The Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge and suddenly drew itself up to a great height. Yeah. And its wings, wings were spread from wall to wall. Yeah. But still Gandalf could be seen glimmering in the gloom. Yeah, it's, yeah that sounds, I got wings here too. Yeah, That's not like wings are there. Huh. I know that in like the appendices, there's also like, in terms of people trying to track his idea of how the Balrogs evolved. Some people will, they have very, this is, Tolkien fans, like really hardcore ones, will go to war over that issue. <laughs> over about where and what and how they were supposed to be compared. Yeah. Um, some of the, one of the more recent things that I had really listened to, they had compared those things and talked about the possibilities of Tolkien's intentions regarding the Balrogs was these twisted spirits that during the Einar, uh, it's more of a thing that like, that these things heard the music and attuned themselves to Melkor's will and what he was doing. Yeah. That these, these like, that, that they don't, that the Balrogs are not as fundamental in terms of their shape and form as they are in their essence. Yeah. Like that sense of like what it is they are, are, it's like, are they spirits of fire or shadow? They're compared as close as, yeah. as Tolkien can get to demons, which would be like, and if we're going to go definitely into where Tolkien likely would have been drawing off of the uh, 
Catholic theology of that angels are not physical beings but spiritual beings and yeah. thus don't take up space and are not made of matter. You know, but there is this sense of where there is a sense of physicality with the angelic beings, like Gandalf, for example, is a physical being and has matter, but Saruman as well. But there's that sense of that the Balrog is like it's what the Balrog is, yeah, is I think is is important, if not more important than the points of the film that it takes. Yeah. No, I think you're right on because and he kinda almost contradicts himself a little bit in the in the description even within that chapter like it's like this smoke and flame wreathed about him and then it's like not there when he describes yeah. it on the bridge but it like it yeah. is still yeah, so it does seem like it's an ever-changing physical thing but at the same time yeah or so like, it, yeah, what it is it's more important it's like clothed in shadow yeah i guess it's like we don't really know exactly what it looks like this thing yeah. it, i guess i kind of i find that that's what's most interesting is when you were talking about of the sense of greed like that it's like well is it possible that the dwarves could have had more than they all needed but they wanted more and so that's the source of the destruction or is it possible that even if they went continuing on this thing that dwells in the dark would have heard their music and come up from the shadows the point is, is that this thing is a thing of darkness like i mean not just like a oh the lights are off but like it when you think about beings of evil, or in the sense that it dwells and it, it, it finds refuge, I mean, presumably this would have been one, and I think this was the controversial bit because people argue about how many Balrogs there were or what they were like, but in this account particularly, this guy was talking and advocating for at least seven Balrogs that may not have all looked like, or been, it's the essence, like I said, it matters what they are, that they may not, like, for example, said some uh, may have been fallen Maiar, some have been, may have been spirits, like not embodied things that attune themselves to Melkor. So they may not have all, it's more like a rank, like angel, for example, is, like, is, a, is a title. You know, right. There's different choirs within angels. They're all angels, but they're different. Like, for example, if you really want to go into the theology aspect, that, um, that there's the case to be made that every angel is its own species, but that they all are angels. Like the angel is the, the title, so that Balrogs could be different. Um, according, but the more so that these things dwell in the darkness, yeah. like it's like the deepest, darkest places of the world in which there is no light. And I think that's what makes the contrast of Gandalf standing on the bridge, being like that that the Balrogs are not unfamiliar with the powers of the West, and that ultimately this thing of of strength and crushing the weak and all these things it it knows of the powers of the west but it sees that gandalf has that power but still wants to snuff him out yeah so, yeah this is this is the guy's uh answer this is probably the most classic internet tolkien correction of all time the answer is no barogs def definitely clearly authoritatively do not have wings Curious, which scholar is that, Caleb? Is it David Day? No. Okay. Corey Olson. Well, yeah, who knows? That's right there, wait. So that's what I'm wondering, like, if that's what is one of those edition things of... Could be. I don't know. I do know what I think that... Someone's talking to me about this today. It's like the reactions of characters often tells you more than like what the descriptions of the things mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. and like everyone loses their, <laughs> their stuff when when the Balrog comes out. Even the orcs are just freaking out, yeah. and it's it's so interesting. Like like even Gandalf is just like oh boy, 
Like he's just yeah. like totally deflated, yeah. and he already feels tired and right. and it's like it, it's uh, it's just it's so interesting to see that reaction because tell is so telling, and it almost is like I don't know. It's almost like they see this thing that they can't really see, and then that's what makes them the most terrified. It's because it's so ill-defined and it's not of their material world in, in a way. It's just so crazy. I remember it's like sometimes I would, like sometimes when, when I was doing MMA, I would be in, in a, a moment where I like would step up to 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 like fight someone who uh, who I didn't, like I was like, you know, I worked out earlier or something and like I was about to spar with someone who I knew I didn't know much about and then like they revealed themselves very quickly to be really freaking good and like we would break apart for a minute and like I can feel what Gandalf is feeling yeah. in that moment when he's just like oh. yeah. it's like but I've got to do this kind of thing and it's just like this extraordinary weariness on you but at the same time you're like I've got to go back in and face this and, it, and it's just it's it's something else and like that that feeling that just washes over you and it's, I don't know, it's something so powerful about his reactions. Like, after seeing Gandalf do just some really impressive things, and then even, like, later on, in fact, finding out more about how powerful he is looking back on this, it's like, this thing going to be awful. Like, <laughs> like the worst. Like, it's, uh, just to, just to like, even wrap my brain around that's hard. And then, of course, you, like, think about the film, really, and there's, like, seven of them at once. It's like, oh, my gosh. Like, like what? Yeah. I can't even wrap my brain around that because he builds it up so well in this story. But, yeah, it's a really interesting creature um, on so many levels. Uh, and, yeah, man, I don't want to jump ahead because people, people listening to this may not have read the next. So I'm not going to jump ahead because that would <laughs> definitely ruin some things. You almost, almost have to jump to the appendix for the... the War of the Dwarf and the Goblins. Oh, yeah. Because that kind of sets a really interesting picture, again, of putting weight here, where, mm -hmm. you know, the dwarves win the battle, and they're still like, and who is it? Um, the one leader of the dwarves is like, I'm the only one that looked into Moria. I'm the only one that saw Dern's Bane. Like, I'm done. Like, mm -hmm. who cares? Like, we, you know, like, this is over. Like, yeah, I, I mean, there's that point of like that point of darkness. The Balrogs are some of the darkest, if not the darkest, creatures in all of existence. You know that that these things were Morgoths, elite soldiers, generals, uh, guard, whatever you want to call it. I mean, there is that kind of sense, like even amongst the Maiar, like that mere people. Like we'd kind of be like, all right, Gandalf, you're our guy. You've got the magic and the spells and stuff. But it's like even Sauron, who is yeah. a Maiar, like there's there's a sense of like where uh, where Sauron is aware of Gandalf, but he's not threatened by him. He's just like, oh, he's this meddlesome fool. He's very foolish in all the distance. He doesn't really consider Gandalf, even though they're of the same order. But they're like different spirits. So, yeah. You know, so like there's that that point of, of a discrepancy of power or position. And the fact of like these beings from the beginning have attuned themselves to darkness. That and that so that's like that's where they thrive. There's that, that sense of the unknown. Maybe that's why we're so fascinated by Balrogs and Tolkien yeah. had so many questions about Balrogs. Maybe. It's, it's like with Dracula. You know, like there's sort of this <laughs> fascination with him. Uh, you know, and, and 
I don't know, Dracula's a bit more visible than Balrog. Balrog's a bit more of like the dark, the thing in the darkness for which you, there, it's not, it's not there. It's, it's like, it, it's there, but you don't, you can't know it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's beyond some sense of comprehension. The unknown, for sure, is, a, is like a perilous aspect of yeah. this thing. No doubt about it. Yeah. So if we, if we look at what happens here, um, and we look at the fellowship as an entity, as a, as a, as a character in itself, what, what I think we kind of learn about the Balrog and, and Moria and all this is when you do go into the darkness, you will lose a part of yourself. And in this particular instance, when the Balrog's whip comes up, grabs Gandalf, and he says, fly you fools, and he's gone. Wisdom's yeah. gone from, from the Fellowship. But they've lost, they've lost the sage, they've lost the magician. They're on their own wits now, of whatever can save them. Um, so when you go, when, as, when we go into the chaos, when we go into the unknown, a part of us will not come out. We will be changed, we'll be different, it will look different uh, from that point. Now, there are spoilers to go forward, but you will lose a part of yourself. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the first time that we really see this is going to cost. This journey is going to cost, and it cost us our best guy. Yeah, yeah. sort of like the beginning of the end of the fellowship, the cracks yeah. after yeah. Gandalf. And I think that's the fundamental point: is like not to just leave on that note that darkness is all powerful, but that it's can you find the light within the darkness, yep. and can ultimately all the shadow in all of existence ever blot out the light? No. And that's that point that even though Gandalf is gone, the light for which he is serving and represents is still with the fellowship, still in the world. He can't get rid of that. It's like, you know, uh, uh, sort of like, I guess, that, and I think this really does cement the greatness of hope and, and ultimately the defeat of evil in that, um, there, and this is a slightly, slight tangent, but I promise it comes back, is this sense of like, there, there was a, there, a lot of critiques a lot of times uh, from an Islamic perspective of Jesus is that if Jesus is really God, then how does God die? It's a sense of like if you have the Bible, which is the Word of God, and you destroy the physical book, that doesn't destroy the Word of God. The Word of God is still there. So even though Gandalf embodies in some sense and is a mediated agent of the light and of, of Eru Iluvatar, and even though he falls, there's it's not without hope. It's not without God being able to work providentially or Iluvatar you know, providentially working through the events of the world to ultimately bring that, that, that evil cannot transgress and, and conquer that. That no matter how much, especially venturing into the dark place, is there still light? Is there, is there still light to be found? Light you may not be able to see, but light that is there. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's such, a, it's such a powerful visual image to the whole thing. It just lines it up so well. And yeah, I've been I've been in those places, you know, where like you wander into that dark spot, and yeah, you don't come out the same. Like, you just don't. Um, that's not to say that you're not transformed into something better over time, but it's it's not going. You're not going to be the same. And a lot of that too is is innocence lost. And I think a lot of the, the group loses a lot of innocence in this in this period, especially the hobbits. They lose 
a lot of their naivete yeah. right here in this moment. And, um, and that's always so hard to... It's, it's funny, I read, this, I read this all the time. Like, I've read this book so many times, and every single time I get to that part, I'm like, ugh. And the crying just gets me. Just, like, it's right in the heart every single time after they run out of uh, the, yeah, run out of the eastern gate and then they just start weeping. It's just, man, it just gets me. And, and, uh, the, uh, yeah, that innocence lost, that part of them that's gone. And yet, like you said, there's still, there's still that hope, there's still that beauty and they become something more in the long run, but it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do, no doubt about it. It's gonna, Gonna hurt. That process of going through suffering. Yeah. And can there be good that is wrought in us mm. through suffering, despite yeah. suffering? It's a nice, a nice answer to the theodicy there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that. So. Yeah. I think that's you know sometimes I feel like stories are the reasons. Stories are one of the best combatants against theodicy. It's like mm. the heart can't, the the mind can't always comprehend theodicy, but the heart can see it, see the truth behind mm. it. Um, you know, there's some way it gets around into our minds. So I, I know, and I'm sorry I keep talking so much. I, I was listening to Dr. Peter Kreeft talk. He was in an interview uh, this last weekend, and he was talking. It's like we were talking about the sense of like, can this sense of a story like, is it real? And I think what's interesting is that um, they, the topic of escapism was brought up, and he said, I think a really good story that's brought for escapism doesn't take you out of the world. It focuses you on truths of the world. That these stories that we see, like and I, I hadn't thought about it like that before. That and it's not in the sense just to escape to to escape from reality and to escape from life, but that to look into these stories, it focuses us back on what most fundamentally matters in this world. Yeah, like it's like wow, that those are the best stories. Yeah, it's like mm. that. That is really deep. Yeah. This is why postmodern stories <laughs> cannot work. They're always inferior because they're always pointed at you. Or the sense of trend, like to, to escape, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things to go there, but like the destruction of reality. If we don't like our reality, we've got to remake it. Mm -hmm. You know, and the sense of like the eventual conceptual utopia. Um, and there's many forms in which that takes to try and bring about the idea of utopia becomes more sacred than you than actually trying to get there. Because when you get there, the, it's, it's not as great as the idea that it's lived up to. Well, let's pull on that real quick, because if that's true, utopia, if it's actually achievable, that means that I myself can know what I myself most needs. And if I can know that, then I can create this utopia. But how do I know what I need? You know what? Gandalf dying was what I needed. And when it happens, and I feel that grief, and I, and I go through that grief, I realize that no, I need the suffering. The suffering actually has purpose and value. In my utopia, I wouldn't have the suffering and I would become less human. Mm -hmm. And so when you read these stories that have these things we don't like in them, um, and we have a life that has suffering, and we actually find meaning, whereas we created the utopia with no suffering, yeah. we would lose meaning almost instantly in that. Um, so I think that's, that's, why, that's why the postmoderns fail. That's just why those, those escapisms, they always fail. And to your point, pointing to a lack of transcendence is, is why, you know, pointing to exclusive humanisms, for lack of a better word, is why so many of those stories fail, like Frozen 2, for example. Right. Like, a lot of people don't really know why they didn't like that movie, 
But part of the reason they they don't like that movie is because it was like, oh, I was the I was the, the supreme being all along. It's like I, the thing I was looking for was it was me. me. Yeah. Oh it's no, like, no. It's like wait, no, that's not what you were looking for because you're always going to be disappointed in the end. Like it's it will you will disappoint yourself. The whole, um, whole thing was a lie. This call to adventure into yeah. the unknown was, was I was calling to myself. Yeah. Like how's how does that make any unknown sense? Unknown parts of me? Okay, yeah, well now that you know those parts of you, what next? Exactly. Like, you know, so, it's like this, yeah, this endless, like, loop into nothingness. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those huge tragedies of modernism leading into postmodernism that we've kind of, like, removed ourselves from the idea that transcendence is, is you know, is A, but also is is what's driving us forward. It's just it's such a sad thing. And that's why I think people love these books so much. It's like it's they point us to transcendence even though they don't do it explicitly. Like we can just feel it. Like it's just there. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that even when that show tries to remove itself from the narrative, it can't. Like it's like I've like a several times in there I was like didn't quite be, you can't quite pull it off, can you? Right. I see right, it. It's yeah. poking through. Yeah. Like there's that element of transcendence that you just can't get away from because it's embedded in the story and there's no way around it. And it's just, yeah. I was like, ah, it's just, it's just nice to see that they can't completely dismantle what what is there without you know rip, ripping out the heart. Yeah. And uh, they know that they, they no, it's a certain degree they can't do it. So. And even when they rip out the heart, it's like people see what's left and they're like. Yeah. If you if people who are not immediately familiar with it, they're like something's missing here. I can't put my finger on it. Yeah. And it's like creeped. I, in that interview, somebody had asked him about the Rings of Power. He just said, "I watched the first thirty minutes of it, and I kept asking myself the whole time, where's Tolkien?' Granted, I'm sure I'm sure he doesn't he hasn't followed the the show and everything. Um, you know, but I, I think that's the fundamental point: is you rip out the heart, you're left with a shell. Yeah. And if you try to say that the shell is the most consequential thing, you're missing. It's, I think that's a tragedy more than anything. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's, you know, like, there, never mind my individual nerd rage of, ah, but it's a sense of, like, beyond that. I think yeah. it's really a sad thing if we mistake the, 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 hmm. if we, instead of thinking about that which is greatest, we think about that which is most mediocre. Yeah. And try to elevate that to the greatest. Yeah. It's not even like the lowest. It's like most mediocre. That somehow makes it worse. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, like, it's, like it's, it's like going for the lukewarm. Yeah. It's, um, it, and championizing that. And, uh, yeah. Well, that, that's what, honestly, if, if you think about postmodernism in, in this sense and all, these, and all this literature, they can't create a story that you would want to read, so they have to buy for billions of dollars a story you want to read, and then they put their thing in the middle of it, and you take a bite, and you're like, oh, I don't like, no, that's not, I thought I was getting something else. So they take everything that's, that has the allure to it that you're used to, and then they go, oh, I'm going to remake this, and I'm going to show you a bit, and, and, and it doesn't work, it never, it never does, so it, but they need the name ID, they need... The, the, they need the, uh, what does the Bible say? It has a uh, form of godliness, denies the power thereof. Mm -hmm. They need that form, and they're like, oh, you can put anything in that form, and it's, it's the same. They're equal. And then people start to go, no, this is not, this is, I don't know what this is, but this isn't what I got over here. This is something different. Yeah. And I'll pass. And it's, and it's tastable. Yes. You taste it. Like, you may not be able to identify the flavor, but you know it's there. Like, yeah. it's, it's just something that's missing. It's, it's like when people 
uh, you know, put in a put in a spice that your mom don't put in a spice your mom always put into your favorite food and then you try it again later and that's not right. It's just you just know it, but you don't know why. But I think that's probably why. Well, many of our group have had a discussion. <laughs> <so it's laughs> <probably not there. laughs> Only the hardcore are left. <laughs> <laughs> Only the zebra turds. Oh man. Well, Wes, you want to send us out? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to use my catchphrase at the end further up. Uh, we'll see you guys next time.